0: This is limitless possibility. I'm Luc Olivier
1: and I'm Yannick Maya.
0: And what's our topic for this week, Yannick?
1: Catalina and the 64-bit migration.
0: Good, but before we start, I have some follow-up. Item number one, which was mentioned in the past two episodes, is on January 19th. Yannick and I will do a special episode. We can call it this way, I guess, about Apple's TVs, the morning show, and. Some related shows that was uh, that launched with the Apple TV service uh, back in November, but we will mainly focus on the morning show because that's the main show that Yannick and I watched. I don't think you watched too much other shows on Apple TV Plus.
1: I watched maybe one or two episodes of For All Mankind and mm. did not like it. So,
0: um, okay, we need to talk about this in the episode. But I would say maybe if you want to pick it up, that. Power through the first three episodes.
1: Oh, I don't want to pick it up because I don't like space stuff in general, so...
0: <laughs> okay. No, but I, we'll, we will discuss it even more than in the episode. So all of this is to say we strongly suggest that in the next two weeks that you watch The Morning Show. The all ten episodes are now already out for at least mm, let's say three, four weeks at this point. And, oh, I think it's three weeks now. I'm getting confused with the holiday uh, break, but uh, it... So you should be able to pick it up because they will be spoilers. I'm sure we'll talk at great length about the story itself. So if you don't want to leave this episode in your podcatcher, please make sure to catch up with The Morning Show. Or you can just
1: do like what my dad did, and he just watched the last two episodes with us the other day, and he doesn't need to watch the rest of the show, I guess. Sure. I guess he'll find out the rest of the story by listening to a podcast. <laughs>
0: That could happen too. Okay, for real follow-up, Um remember last episode I discussed about iOS 12 de- deployment target and I mentioned a lot of deprecation. Some of them that we'll talk again today, but one of them in particular, which was about UI WebView. So just before the uh, iTunes, the App Store Connect shutdown, Apple updated its uh, the Apple Developer News poll and dropped a small bomb. So on December 23rd, 2019, they announced that if you're still using UI WebView after April 2020, they will no longer accept new apps that links to that uh, class. And any app updates linking to UI WebView will be uh rejected as of December 2020. So more or less for most... Yeah, for most developers you still have a year to get rid of UI webview everywhere you in your code base but for new user for new apps hopefully you've already have uh, used uh, WK webview or you're planning to use WK webview uh, because if not you have four months to rewrite part of your apps that use UI webview to make sure that you use wK webview or I guess or I guess just ship an update now that uh, App Store connect is back open and that's it for follow-up
1: So you may have heard uh, one of the big controversial points for the Mac in 2019 was that macOS Catalina would no longer run 32-bit applications. Pretty much every OS upgrade could technically introduce bugs in existing applications, but this is a much more significant overhaul that is likely to break three classes of software that people are particularly sensitive to breaking. The first is expensive commercial software with paid upgrades. Second is... Drivers, although not so much because there have been other changes to drivers that also happened alongside Catalina and software that are tied to hardware products like printers and scanners and all that stuff. And then video games. Um, and pe- people are particularly sensitive about the video games. Uh, why
0: am I surprised?
1: Of course. Fucking gamers. Uh, <laughs> but upgrading to Catalina can represent needing to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars upgrading to new versions of software or buying new hardware to keep your existing workflows afloat. And that could have been avoided if you chose not to upgrade in the first place. So naturally, angry users who upgraded to Catalina are quick to blame Apple because they, quote, needlessly dropped support for 32-bit apps and are causing a, quote, Mac software apocalypse. Although I'd argue that it's not needless and Apple maybe isn't the party to blame for all of this. So in this juicy episode, uh I will try to A justify Apple's reasons for dumping 32-bit support, B lay out in what ways Apple telegraphed this change that far in advance so developers would be ready for it, C shift the blame from Apple to developers and a mysterious third party. And D, give my conspiracy theory as to why the Mac software apocalypse was kind of unavoidable anyway, and would have happened anyway. But before we start, this episode is far less interested in technical details behind the 64-bit migration, and it's much more about Apple's messaging and philosophy, and how it differs from other software vendors, so even if you're a non-developer, you should understand this episode and probably learn something from this episode however if you are interested in a more technical look at things there is an excellent blog post by martin pilkington that covers things really well and like i sort of felt bad when i read his post because i realized that my outline had lots of similarities with his post and i was like oh no people are gonna think i just ripped off his post um but his is a lot more technical and i have First of all, I found like inconsistencies when I did the research and some of the things he mentioned, so I will cover those. And I also just want to put more meat around like the context surrounding this more so than the actual technical details.
0: And you know what? I think it is the most important part of that we can call it transition, uh, if I dare to say. Um, it feels that, yes, there's technical change, changes, but there's always technical changes with new OS's. So the context around it, I think, on my side, is the most important part. So I might be that you're uh, focusing on that part first.
1: Yes, uh, and usually that is like 95% of any reaction to Apple's decisions is not like Apple's decision is wrong or technically incorrect. It's just people disagree philosophically with how Apple does stuff. And this is another version of that. So yeah, users are justifiably upset that the things that the Catalina upgrade broke are broken, especially if it's critical to their workflow. And I just want to mention to those users that you can listen to this episode and fully agree with me, and you're probably still going to be pissed that your workflow doesn't work anymore, and that there's not much you can do about it now. And I I mean, this episode is not going to nullify your pain. It's just going to try to explain why this happened. And... One place where Apple actually is wrong is that Apple is pushing Catalina much more aggressively than any previous OS upgrade I can remember via the software update mechanism. Uh, I have come back to my computer trying to auto-update to Catalina, which is fucking insane. Uh, And I feel it's one of the biggest mistakes that they've made with this whole upgrade cycle. Especially when an OS upgrade is very likely to break a portion of your user's software, you shouldn't be trying to trick users into installing it because it's just going to make them feel like they got stabbed in the back by you.
0: Yeah, they will feel ripped up.
1: Yeah, it's part of the betrayal that users are feeling right now, I think. So let's start off by asking the big question, why is Apple dumping 32-bit support? Well, before that, I should probably explain what the distinction is between 32-bit, which was the norm until the mid-2000s, and 64-bit. So much like the console wars of the '90s, a lot whoa, of thi- whoa,
0: whoa, whoa. before you start, I, I thought it was still the North Windows.
1: Don't don't steal <laughs> the punchline right now. <laughs> so much like the uh, during the console wars of the '90s, a lot of things can be defined as either 32-bit or 64-bit, and when you're talking about things with your friends, you may actually be comparing apples to oranges without realizing it. Luckily, nowadays a lot of that is in the past, and hardware and software vendors have come to some sort of agreement on what 64-bit generally means. So in terms of hardware, what 64-bit represents is a processor architecture that has direct support for data types with a 64-bit length, usually through supporting two things, 64-bit integer math and having 64-bit registers. If that sounds like complete gobbledygook to you, which it probably does, uh, what that enables in software is the usage of 64-bit virtual memory addresses, and in less technical terms, what that means is, if your OS kernel is built for 64-bit, the entire system can now address over 4 gigs of memory, natively without resorting to trickery. Uh There is a bunch of trickery that can be used by kernels to sort of fudge the numbers a bit, uh, and we might talk about a few of those a little bit later, um, and... If a particular application is compiled with 64-bit support, that process can also itself consume over 4 gigs of memory and benefit from higher performance math with larger integer types because they can call the new instructions that the new 64-bit architecture gave them. A 64-bit architecture is technically a different hardware target than a 32-bit one, which means it doesn't necessarily need to be backward compatible, although many or most of them are. And breaking changes can be made with a 64-bit architecture if it's deemed appropriate. But in most cases, people just try to stay backward compatible. And 64-bit kind of came along because as applications were becoming more and more RAM-hungry, 64-bit became the next obvious step for computing. Uh, in particular, it's highly beneficial for servers, which try to keep on-the-fly memory allocations to a bare minimum by pre-allocating a massive chunk of memory to work in for performance reasons. It's a lot faster to pre-allocate all of your memory and then just use that memory with your own memory manager than it is to J- just, like, allocating free memory on the fly as you're doing things on a server. Uh, this is why, like, if you ever go look at the process manager on, uh, like, a SQL server or something like that, like, you'll see that SQL server is using a huge chunk of memory. And, like, in reality, it's probably only using a percentage of that memory in real time, but it preallocates all of that because everything would be significantly slower if it had to spin up those allocations every single time. Uh, so as I mentioned, x... 8664 which is the technical name for this architecture uh, or the intel 64-bit architecture i should specify continues to have all of the old 32 bits lying around to be used for backward compatibility it's basically like if you staple a pentium onto whatever your new modern processor is like you have half the processor which is for old shit and half the processor for new new shit so if the hardware is still capable of doing all this stuff why does it Why exactly does Apple feel like they need to rip out support for it? And there are three major reasons for this. So the first is ensuring everything is running on the modern Objective-C runtime, which has only ever been available as 64-bit on the Mac. So in 2007, Leopard came out and it launched Objective-C 2.0, which is a revised version of Objective-C with a bunch of new features. And it brought with it a new Objective-C runtime, which is only available on 64-bit Macs. However, it's available on both PowerPC and
0: Intel. It's funny that you mentioned uh, Objective-C to 2.0, because I recall at that time that, oh, I'm learning Objective-C, and then didn't, never realized that I was learning Objective-C 2.0 and not 1.0.
1: Yeah. And honestly, like, that's when it got good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, because I've I messed around with new step stuff on Linux, which was still using Objective-C 1.0 stuff, and it's much less fun to develop in. It's still good, but it's not as fun. Uh, And because of that, every quality of life improvement that was made to the Objective-C language since 2007, and the launch of the iPhone as a platform, which technically also took place in 2007, has only been available on this modern Objective-C runtime. Uh, Things like ivar synthesis, uh, automatic uh, reference counting, all the good stuff... Uh, One of the significant features of this new runtime is affixed to what's called the fragile Ivar problem, which is super technical, so I won't get too far into it, but it limited Apple's ability to update objects that were frequently extended by shipping applications without breaking those applications entirely, even if the public interface and behavior was completely consistent with the previous version, which is very good for uh, the extensibility of code. Funnily enough, Swift code requires this modern runtime to coexist with Objective-C libraries in the same executable. And like the little asterisk in the corner is technically there was a 32-bit version of the modern runtime, but only on ARM. Uh, iOS devices that were predating the iPhone 5S had uh, the modern runtime because Apple wanted the juicy Objective-C 2 features to be available on their hot new platform, which is totally understandable. So the second reason that Apple would want to move on from 32-bit is just plain old legacy technology clean suite. Uh, The biggest one of these legacy technologies is going to be Carbon, and other adjacent technologies that were kept around mostly to support existing Carbon apps. Uh, If you're not aware, Carbon was a layer that facilitated OS X ports of classic Mac apps. It's been around since the year 2000 when Carbon Lib was first released as an extension for Mac OS 8.1. And for all intents and purposes, it's a completely parallel set of system APIs that mimics what developers were familiar with on the classic Mac, Mac, while also bringing the core foundation APIs from OS X to the classic Mac for the 8.x and 9.x era. Uh, Having Carbon stick around on the Mac meant that a lot of ancient APIs, some of which originated with literally the first 1984 Macintosh, needed to be kept around just in case, and imagine having to maintain effectively an entire second set of system APIs for a dwindling number of applications for almost 20 years. That's what Carbon was. Uh, Dropping Carbon is arguably more significant in terms of developer effort than dropping support for 32-bit itself, as If you've got a 32-bit application and you need to make it 64-bit, you can basically audit your code base for the most part. And unless you've got like some assembly codes lying around somewhere, you can migrate it rather easily in air quotes. Whereas applications written in Carbon can't really have most of their code salvaged into modern Cocoa applications and needed to be rewritten, which is sucky.
0: If I recall history correctly, that's kind of what that was the purpose of carbon sixty four is to say, oh, you can go to sixty four bit but 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 you don't have to rewrite your whole application. But we need to remember that it never came to fruition.
1: Yeah, and there will be more on that later. Oh, oh, sorry, stealing points again. No, it's good. Uh, carbon is actually kind of funny because it plays an interesting parallel to something I just mentioned in the last point, which is. Uh, the quality of life changes that were added to the Objective-C runtime. Carbon wasn't available on 68k max, and it was one of the first major features that pushed developers to embrace being PowerPC only if they wanted to be future for OS X uh if you, like you, you might have heard recently John Syracuse talking about Pro Max because that's kind of what he does uh and he mentioned going from an SE30 to a G3 like that was literally something people could do because the support for 68k and PowerPC fat binaries was so strong and there was so little reason to actually be PowerPC only that for many years you could just limp along with the 68030 and be a perfectly happy Mac user uh, and also helps that the SE30 was a dope ass Mac. Uh, another, like, legacy technology that is sort of carbon adjacent is QuickTime 7. Uh, that was still hanging around. It was replaced with AV Foundation in 2011. Um, there's still a lot of moaning about what the QuickTime 7 API could do that the QuickTime 10 or AV Foundation API can't do, but. Having looked at both of them and having used AV Foundation, AV Foundation is so much more usable as a client of the API than QuickTime ever was. Um, but there you go. And then the third reason, which is kind of a weak reason, to be honest, uh, that Apple is trying to get rid of 32-bit on the Mac is... DYLD shared cache memory pressure. Uh, So what this means in English is uh, almost every process on your Mac is going to rely on system libraries in some way. And instead of loading distinct copies of these libraries for each process on the machine and eating up a ton of memory, the DYLD shared cache is loaded into memory when the system is booted. And that's one large dump of all the system libraries. And the system makes sure that all the processes on the system can access them. But there is a catch. Uh, 32-bit and 64-bit applications can't share the same, the, uh, can't share the same shared cache. Wow, that's great. Uh, so that means- That's you, a mouthful. Yeah. So that means you need to load in a second shared cache as soon as the user launches a, a 32-bit app. And in recent versions of macOS, that shared cache is about 500 megabytes big. Uh, and it doesn't get freed until you reboot the machine, assuming no 32-bit processes are launched during startup. Uh, so basically, like, e- you're going to be using an extra 500 megabytes if you're regularly using 32 bit applications on your Mac. Uh, by the way, this has always been the case on iOS where a Ram penalty is far more significant because the iOS devices are far more memory constrained than Macs. Uh, that said, I think like on the Mac, I think a lot of users would be willing to pay this kind of price for backward compatibility. And they don't really care about 500 megabytes because we've got computers with up to 1.5 terabytes of Ram now. Uh, I mean, that's not going to be the common case, uh, but a lot of people have a lot of RAM to spare, and I don't think this is as huge a deal as, pe- as it was on iOS, let's say. So those are kind of the reasons that Apple would dump 32-bit. Now, you might say, well, a lot of these reasons don't really have any user-facing benefit really it's just like or at least any direct user-facing benefit it's sort of there's an indirect user benefit via uh things that are enabled by the six uh by the modern Objective-C runtime and all that stuff but
0: I wouldn't be surprised that one of the kind of quote-unquote direct benefit would be uh like this uh, five hundred meg cache that you had to load, because I recall that Apple sometimes uh, in the recent OSs like a performance difference. They were like, "Oh my god, this is so fast!" or "This is this uses so much less uh, RAM." And I wouldn't be surprised to say, "Yeah, I didn't look at the asterisks next to this comment, but it's written at the bottom." Like, if you run only sixty-four bits programs, yeah, so that that could be one.
1: I ah, guess, but still, it it, it feels like. Nobody you actually like describe this problem to and say, you're going to have 500 megs more free RAM. Like nobody's going to care if they have to spend like $300 upgrading software, right?
0: Oh no, They're- for sure, for sure.
1: <laughs> it's like the software was working fine before even when I had the 500 meg penalty, the- it was already factored into my RAM budget. Like big fucking deal. <laughs> I mean, it- it's kind of a weak argument and the other arguments are all indirect benefits to users which is why i think only sort of developers get why this is a good thing next up i want to talk about how apple warned developers that 32-bit support was going to be dumb and the best way to do this is to just go through a timeline starting in 2003 so june 23rd 2003 apple launches the first 64-bit mac the paramac g5 with a special build of os10 jaguar uh, at this point The macOS is still fully 32-bit, which means that if you buy a G5 with 8 gigabytes of RAM, half of it is unusable right now. Uh, Wow. Yeah. Uh, October 24th, 2003, a couple months later, OS X Panther launches and it adds support for the 64-bit integer arithmetic instructions on G5 Max, and the kernel is given an update that makes more than 4 gigabytes addressable via the system's 42-bit MMU, but is otherwise the same 32-bit kernel as before. Uh, Maximum addressable RAM via the MMU is 4 terabytes, and the maximum configurable RAM in a G5 Power Mac at the time is 16 gigabytes, so this is not a problem. April 29, 2005, OS X Tiger launches, and it adds command-line support for 64-bit executables, which means command-line apps can now use over 4 gigs of RAM. Yay! January 10, 2006, the MacBook Pro and the iMac are released as the first two Intel Macs, shipping with a 32-bit Intel Core, 2 Duo, uh, Core Duo. sorry. Um, yeah so there
0: was no 2 in this one
1: yes and that is an important distinction because that is what makes it 32-bit in July of 2006 Core 2 is announced which is the 64-bit version of the Core line Uh so they missed it by a couple of months and then in September 6th 2006 a spec bump to the iMac as the first 64-bit Intel Mac shipped with the Core 2 Duo starting the gradual replacement of 32-bit Intel CPUs and Macs with 64-bit Intel CPUs um I remain fairly convinced that if those Core Duo and Core Solo Max had never come out, we probably would have accelerated the timeline of the migration by a couple of years. Uh, but just the fact that there were 32-bit Macs like thrown in there randomly uh, complicated and lengthened the transition.
0: I do wonder if uh, that was maybe part of uh, Apple's negotiation with Intel at that time. I know uh, when they migrated away from uh, PowerPC to Intel, they were like, oh my God, Intel is so nice. We love we love a partnership with them. Uh, I guess it would be rare to hear Apple say that these days, but uh, I would like, would like to have been to be a fly on the wall to see what was the discussion around uh, 64-bit chips at that time. Definitely. October
1: 26, 2007, OS X Leopard launches. And it adds support for Cocoa 64-bit executables and the modern Objective-C runtime. For most application developers, this is where the 64-bit transition begins in earnest. Funnily enough, yes, it did take two and a half years for developers to be fully able to take advantage of the 64-bit G5 processor. And it took so long that by the time they got there, PowerPC wasn't even the main architecture anymore, uh, which is kind of funny. And at this point, Apple didn't announce any plans to end 32-bit support, but... When debuting the new Objective C Runtime, the choice of the words modern and legacy should give you a big hint as to what's going on here.
0: <laughs> wink, wink. And we're like literally nearly 12, 13 years ago. I'd say 12 and a half years ago at this point.
1: Yeah, it's, so it's quite a, it's a ways a away.
0: Legacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the first few hints were far away.
1: Yes. August 28th, 2009, Snow Leopard launches and it drops support for PowerPC. Uh, many system apps are now 64-bit compatible and the OS includes a fully 64-bit kernel, which is enabled on Mac Pro and XServe by default and can be booted into on supported Macs by holding down the 6 on the 4 keys while booting. I forgot about this, but this oh, was really I funny. Know. I uh, didn't know about <laughs> this.
0: That's quite funny as a trick.
1: Yeah, Macs running this kernel can address up to 16 terabytes of RAM. So, good shit.
0: And we're still far away from 16 terabytes of uh, RAM in a Mac.
1: Yes. Uh, July 20th, 2011, Lion launches and drops support for 32-bit Intel Macs. All 64-bit Intel Macs now boot into the 64-bit kernel by default. So, yay! WWDC 2012, Mountain Lion is made available to developers a month prior to launch. I actually forgot that Mountain Lion launched in the middle of the summer for some reason. Uh, But I guess that's because it was previewed to the media back in February or whatever.
0: Mm, yeah, that's weird, but I remember that now.
1: Yep, and Apple announces that Carbon APIs are deprecated and will never be 64-bit native. Wah, wah.
0: <laughs> yeah, what, like five to seven years uh, after they made the announcement that it would be something like that at this point?
1: Yeah, I think, like, if you go back and listen to podcasts at the time, like, it, everybody knew it was never going to come along to 64-bit. Like, it, it seemed so dumb at the time, and... There you go. Finally, they made it official. Uh, Aside from that Mountain Lion announcement where they deprecated Carbon, which I almost forgot to put in this thing, uh, 2011 to 2017 is otherwise a big limbo period where nothing really significant in the 64-bit migration happens on the Mac. Uh, So no new Macs are being sold with 32-bit CPUs. 32-bit Mac usage is only decreasing over time. Uh, By this point, macOS versions are on a yearly cycle. And Apple is slowly migrating what 32-bit code is left in their libraries and system apps over to 64-bit over the course of these many OS versions. Uh, More compelling features are being added every year to Apple's developer tools to push people toward the modern Objective-C runtime, indirectly incentivizing them to drop 32-bit support, the biggest of which is the introduction of the Swift language. Uh, So yeah, and if you aren't getting the hint by now, you're going to be caught with your pants down. Uh, Meanwhile, in a parallel timeline, iPhones went from being all models 32-bit only in 2011 to all models being 64-bit only and no longer launching 32-bit apps at all with the release of iOS 11 in the fall of 2017. So the entire migration happened. Entire migration happened on iOS while this was happening on the Mac. Kind of funny. Uh, WWDC 2017 comes along and macOS High Sierra will be the last version of macOS to run 32-bit apps without compromise. Uh, So big announcement from Apple.
0: Yeah the without compromise was uh, funny to hear what they meant by that and it more or less meant no nagging screen. Right
1: because on April 11th 2018 High Sierra 10.13.4 launched and with that meant that uh, launching 32-bit apps warned users that they are not optimized to run on a smack, which is still a dialogue that I see on my Mac today for a couple things, and that they would stop working in a future update. Uh, The tech note that is linked in the announcement, makes sure to mention that Apple began transitioning to 64-bit hardware and software technology for Mac over a decade ago, just to really like turn the screwdriver in the sides of the developers that have not migrated their shit over yet. Uh so now we're sort of in recent history, so this shouldn't be a huge surprise to everyone. WWDC 2018, Apple announces OS 10 uh sorry, Mac OS Mojave, which is the last major version of Mac OS to run 32-bit apps at all. And then at WWDC 2019, they announced Catalina, which is going to be the first major version of Mac OS to only run 64-bit apps and piss everybody off. Uh so yay. So that's the full timeline for what happened. Uh so I mean You've had a lot of years to sort of migrate your apps from 32-bit to 64-bit. You've had a lot of hints that this was on the way. I don't think this was a surprise to anybody, but apparently some developers didn't get the message. If we look back at this timeline again, uh, most developers who worked exclusively or primarily with Apple platforms and who weren't using Carbon had their apps migrated to 64-bit as quickly as they could following the release of Leopard. Look at the panics on the icon factories of the world. People who love Apple's platforms want to take full advantage of Apple's platforms, and if that means going 64-bit, they're going to be 64-bit, damn it.
0: Yeah, they were supporting uh, DPI displays, like, in 2007 or something like that?
1: Yes, uh, yeah. I remember that there was an episode of the talk show uh, with John Gruber, and he was interviewing uh, Cable Sasser from Panic, and this was the iPhone launch, and, like, half the episode was talking about Coda being high-DPI-ready, like, what like uh five years before the first retina mag came out like great job i love you panic that's why we love you um so why are the categories of apps that i mentioned at the start of the show impacted so heavily by this uh dropping of support for 32-bit applications well, let's start off with expensive commercial software with paid upgrades. So the major players like Microsoft and Adobe are going to be exempt from this because their subscription model now prevents a lot of users from winding up in a situation where they don't have the latest version and aren't compatible. On the, on the flip side of this, though, um like specifically for Adobe, uh, I do know that Adobe has sort of like made it that... Versions of Creative Cloud that are too old, in quotes, no longer work, even if you have an active subscription. Which means, if you are holding on to old hardware, you may be forced to upgrade to new hardware just to keep running your Adobe Creative Cloud. If Apple, uh, if Adobe decides we're not actually going to let this log in anymore, uh, which is kind of a pain.
0: Oh, meaning with the, like a server side, uh, server side locking mechanism or something like that.
1: Yeah um this came up on twitter like last year i think and people got very angry about that because like they sort of had to buy a new machine if they wanted to keep using photoshop and they needed mm. to do their work and everything was working perfectly fine so and they had an active subscription which is the important part
0: <laughs> yeah at the same time i can imagine that adobe wants to deprecate some api that they have uh server side and they're like oh this old version that like maybe two percent of people are using uh we need to just uh, kill it because that's the last version that is using the cpi so bye bye well
1: actually i think it was dumber than that i think they had like pirates had found a way to to pirate that version and oh. that's why they wanted to shut it off but the problem is now you're only left with piracy as an option and it's not a problem to pirate it because it was just pirated right right uh, so it's kind of weird corporate logic i don't get it if you, the user, are clinging to an outdated license instead of keeping up to date, I don't know what you were expecting from upgrading to a new major version of the OS because this kind of stuff breaks all the time, so you were kind of asking for trouble. Um, I mean, I sort of fell into this kind of scenario with 1Password when I upgraded Safari randomly one day, and Safari is like, hey, all your extensions don't work anymore, and now I can't use the 1Password extension on my Mac anymore unless I upgrade to the new 1Password and i don't really want to do that because i don't like the new one password but whatever uh i'll deal with it i do most of my computing on ios anyway so it's not really a problem but even then like we frequently see workhorse applications in creative fields one that stands out a lot to me is music production they get caught by surprise every fucking year when a new os version comes out and there and there's some significant change to something that impacts their application and what a lot of these applications have in common is these are often Multi-platform applications with some shim layer that translates UI code into Cocoa on the Mac and Win32 on Windows. What about software tied to hardware products? Well, often these are multi-platform applications with some shim layer that translates UI code into Cocoa on Mac and Win32 on Windows. Also, if you're primarily selling, selling hardware doodads, maybe it's not in your interest to maintain the software for the older hardware doodad. Because if you don't maintain it, you could sell the newer hardware doodad. Capitalism. Uh, and next up is video games. Uh I saw a tweet stating that out of a sample of a thousand max Steam games, 73% were going to stop working on Catalina. That's nice. Yeah, very nice. And if game developers are not outright shipping a wine wrapper to consumers, which, by the way, doesn't work on 64bit right now, uh they're still generally targeting some sort of multi-platform engine. Uh, Unity, as much as I like to complain about it on the show, is somehow still widely used in the industry, and it did not com- uh, support compiling 64-bit binaries until 2014. But don't forget that game development can have multi-year lead times, and projects can't necessarily easily be carried over from one version of a game engine to the next. So this means that Unity games only recently started chipping on the Mac as 64-bit binaries. What makes games in particular sort of a sad example is a lot of game development, aside from like games as a a service, like your League of Legends and your Apex Legends and all that stuff, uh, follows a one and done model where they stop being patched relatively quickly after the game has launched because publishers don't want to have to keep paying indefinitely to maintain all of the games they've ever released. And this means that most games that existed on the Mac pre-Catalina will never see a 64-bit patch uh, because publishers don't give a shit. So it all comes down to those damn multi-platform developers. What do these multi-platform developers have in common? Well, they don't pay attention to Apple's developer messaging at all. They also somehow think that Apple values their existence. In reality, Apple doesn't really value your existence if you're a multi-platform developer, unless you're Adobe or Microsoft.
0: Yeah, What was the order? I I don't know. forgot when i heard uh the, when i first heard about this but like the uh, kind of priority order at apple is like yeah i think apple itself, made that. Uh, i wouldn't be surprised that's because the gruber thing but i think it's like uh, he said it was like if it was him it was like apple itself then it's user then third party developer something like that so yeah third party developers are like really 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 down the list
1: yeah and like Apple exclusive third party developers are like on the top of that priority list. And then there's like multi platform garbage developers at the bottom, right? Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, like don't think Apple values you as much as you think they do because they don't. Uh, then they also sort of like erroneously assume that Apple values backward compatibility, not unless it's just a few years back, really. Um, Multi-platform developers do not care about the reasons that Apple does what it does because they don't pay enough attention to what they say to actually understand the reasons. Uh, and really, at the end of the day, they just wish everything behaved like Windows because it's the only platform they really pay attention to, and they base the entire preconceptions of their worldview around Windows. And this is a problem because, as I hinted the last episode, the Apple and Microsoft philosophies to software design are radically different. Windows has an additive approach to OS design. Any changes that are made to core technologies in Windows try to be purely additive in nature. This naturally grew out of Windows' market leader position. People invest a ton in software that runs their businesses, and if it breaks regularly when you pay for Windows upgrades, you can't get rich-selling upgrades because all of their software breaks all the time. Uh, Nothing can break because so much legacy software is running in businesses that they need to keep working. The Win32 API technically began with Windows NT in 1993 and has only had more and more stuff annexed to it over time. But this comes with downsides. Uh, It can be incredibly confusing to new developers as to which technology is the one they should be relying on for starting new projects, especially when new and old technologies appear to be treated completely equally in developer tools. Uh, A great example of this is if you open Visual Studio today and you decide to create a new Windows application... You will have the choice of like seven different ways to make your UI Uh, because for a while, uh, every Windows version had a new UI framework that came with it. Uh, XP had Windows Forms. Uh, Vista had WPF. Uh, Seven was still using WPF, let's be fair. Uh, Eight introduced uh, whatever the bullshit they were using on the surface was. Windows 10 was like, nah, fuck that service shit. We are making a new thing that can sort of scale depending on what platform, uh, what form factor you're running on. So there are like five UI frameworks there. And then that's without counting, like you can make your UI in HTML now for some reason and all <laughs> a bunch of other random garbage that got thrown into Visual Studio. And Visual Studio has zero opinion as to which one of these should be the winner. It just lets you decide. And if you choose the wrong one, too bad. It can be incredibly hard to get people to adopt new technologies if the one they're already relying on is effectively stable and they have the security that it's not going anywhere. So once again, with the UI frameworks, like I use a startlingly high number of applications that are still using the same UI framework that was around in Windows XP just because why would I adopt WPF? Why would I do anything? Like, there's no real hook aside from like making your app prettier, which let's be fair, Windows developers are not very good at that to begin with, uh, that are really going to get people excited to adopt new technologies. It's really more about like stability and stagnation. And one of the weird things about this is that, ironically, despite being a software company, Windows feels more like a hardware product with a bunch of expansion cards bolted onto it rather than something that is truly software that is malleable and changes over time. Apple platforms, on the other hand, they have an evolutive... Uh, approach to os design their idea is why should we burden ourselves with having to maintain support for this technology which is no longer the state of the way uh, state of the art way to do things they announced deprecations a few years ahead or like for the ui web view thing like technically they announced that you're going to be screwed in four months but i think the the api has been deprecated a long time
0: yeah, yeah. It was self-deprecated since iOS 8, since the release of the WK WebView, but it was officially deprecated last year, and now they're, like, quite uh, aggressive on, like, now it's officially deprecated, now it's going away, and now you won't be able to ship apps no more with it.
1: Yep, they usually prepare alternatives that mostly get the job done. Once again, I'm referring here to, like, there are some things that UI WebView can do, the WK WebView can't quite do, uh, and this is actually worse on the Mac, where, like, the actual... C++ WebView that uh, WebKit uses uh, is much richer than what WK WebView has. uh, And there has been a lot of discourse surrounding that recently in the Mac community. Uh,
0: Funny you mentioned that. Like there was on December 23rd when the announcement came in, there was a lot of WebKit engineer on Twitter saying, hey, by the way, if you have logged radars that we didn't look or feedback assistant or you haven't done it, it's time to do it. And then please send it my way through twitter it was quite funny just just <laughs> before christmas that engineers were literally like having fun on twitter just making sure that uh people were sending the bug requests or fixes or stuff like that to make sure that they fully migrate
1: another great example of like this kind of api that got deprecated and had an alternative that was mostly able to get the job done is quicktime like i mentioned earlier uh old QuickTime was incredibly rich and allowed you to do a ton of stuff. The API was just, like, complete shit, but that's another thing. Uh, And then uh, AV Foundation comes along, or QuickTime 10, as they called it, and it's significantly more limited in what it can do, but it is a much better API. And in a way, it's sort of, like, refocuses what QuickTime should be about to be, like, mostly focused on H.264, H.265 video, and not so much about uh, all of the old, like, legacy codecs that QuickTime supported, like, old shit like Cinepak and other weird shit like that. Uh, so, yeah, announce deprecations a few years ahead, prepare alternatives that mostly get the job done, and evolve the pr- platform aggressively. Like, this is pretty much Apple's MO, and nobody should be surprised by this, because this is how they've been working ever since Steve Jobs came back to the company. Uh, and Like, this also applies to their hardware design. Like, have you seen the new MacBooks? (laughs) So how does this difference in philosophy manifest itself in this particular case? Well, to Apple, 64-bit is the future of desktop uh, desktop computing. They sort of did everything right in line with that idea. Uh, They led by example by gradually migrating all of the Mac OS to 64-bit code ever since 2003 and had the bulk of it done by 2011 they tried to entice developers with massive developer quality of life features only available wi- via the modern runtime since 2007. They deprecated carbon far enough in advance that anyone that would have had to suffer a complete rewrite of their application to be a 64 bit ready had seven years to do so before Catalina. If you hadn't get gotten clued into what was going on by 2017, they gave you a two year 32 bit deprecation warning to get your shit together. And none of this ever felt like a surprise to anybody who was paying attention and if you had asked me 10 years ago to bet on when the 32-bit uh, support would be dropped, I would have bet probably much sooner than it actually ended up being.
0: I wouldn't be surprised that the iPhone, the arrival of the iPhone, might have delayed that. Uh, like you mentioned, the while macOS was in this like, deprecation phase, they did the transition in iOS uh, fully in that time period. So I wouldn't be surprised that you remember, like, I think it was Leopard that was uh, delayed for the release and then a bit of Snow Leopard 2 because of iPhone releases. I wouldn't be surprised just because of that, that uh, this transition gave you more time to do your job because the arrival of the iPhone.
1: I, I think it's partially the whole, like, yeah, the iPhone sort of distracted Apple developers for a certain period of time. I also think that the 32-bit Intel Macs sort of delayed things a bit because you want to have, like, a grace period where people who bought those Macs still continue to be relevant, and the software that was made that was compatible on those Macs continues to be supported for a little time. It's just, it turned out to be a lot more time than I thought it was going to be, but yeah. And, like, Apple isn't dumb. I think they are very aware that, like, How Microsoft did things with 32-bit, which is the next thing I'm going to be talking about, was not exactly what it should have been. And that multi-platform software was going to get like very screwed by this kind of migration. And at a certain point, they sort of had to just do it because otherwise it was never going to happen. So let's talk about that. Microsoft. So if Apple says 64-bit is the future of desktop computing, Microsoft thinks 64-bit is a checkbox that can be ticked by applications that wish to take advantage of it. Uh, the more you find out about Microsoft's approach to 64-bit, the more absurd it sounds if you're a Mac developer. So first things first, Windows has no support for fat binaries. Uh, developers must ship separate executables and DLLs for 32-bit and 64-bit. There is one exception to this, which is managed applications or uh, basically applications that are... .NET framework that run on the CLR. Uh, These can be compiled as either 32-bit, 64-bit, or any CPU. And if you choose any CPU, uh, it dynamically dispatches to the correct runtime when the executable is launched. Default project templates in Visual Studio still have the prefer 32-bit checkbox checked by default. I sent you a screenshot of this months ago with a sad face on it.
0: Yes. (laughs) And that's
1: basically what kicked off this episode.
0: And that's on the Visual Studio 2019?
1: Uh, yes. Wow. Oh my goodness.
0: Yep. 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 yep.
1: I haven't updated to 2020, but I assume it is the same thing. So aside from kernel and device drivers, 64-bit versions of Windows ship with the rest of the OS duplicated in parallel. On one side, you've got Win64. It's a variant of Win32 with 64-bit support across the board. APIs that were deprecated in Win32 were removed. So finally, they did something that was not purely additive in nature. Uh, old APIs that don't see much use in Win32 anymore have been deprecated but as you can tell deprecation doesn't really mean anything in Microsoft land. I'm still using stuff that's been deprecated since 2003 in 2019 so who the fuck knows when that's going to go away. I guess we'll have to wait until Win128. On the other side of the OS we've got good old 1993 vintage Win32 and its compatibility layer WoW64. Now this is almost too good to be true. The the name of the compatibility layer kind of makes my point for me. That <laughs> the name of the compatibility layer is Windows on Windows 64-bit. So oh, th- no. that says it oh. all. True Windows is 32-bit. 64-bit Windows is just something that exists to enable some kind of edge case, I guess. Who the fuck cares? And like you might think, okay, but Maybe I can, like, install Windows without WoW64 and live the true 64-bit purist lifestyle. Well, only if you're using Windows Server and only in certain configurations. Otherwise, it's required by the OS to actually do anything.
0: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah,
1: Now, the good news is unless you're using absolutely ancient APIs, one code base can generally be used to compile out to both targets. But because 32-bit is the default and there aren't fat binaries, Unless you are particularly memory-hungry, nobody feels like they have a reason to move to 64-bit, so nobody bothers to do the work for it. And this is the bulk of the issue with Windows and multi-platform developers. Nobody on Windows is enthusiastic about anything. People only do things if they are forced to. Microsoft built their business around never forcing developers to do literally anything. And as a result, their platform is stagnant, and the software stack hasn't evolved meaningfully in decades. Now... The flip side to that is a stagnant platform is also extremely backward compatible because like, nothing has changed in 30 years. Uh, and with Windows being the largest player in the OS business, that informs people's opinions on how backwards compatible an operating system should be. If we're being perfectly honest here, the software that died with the launch of Catalina is software that hasn't evolved meaningfully since the launch of the iPhone. I am personally... Very comfortable with waving goodbye to software that has 12 years of technical debt in the name of progress. But compare that to Windows, where they proudly boast about being able to still run the file manager from Windows 3.1 and Windows 10 today. Um Some of my gamer friends campaign developers to get PC releases of games from older consoles like the Xbox and the PS3 and the 360 generation to, quote, preserve them from the future. And I always found that really, really odd from a Mac background. I mean, the reasoning kind of makes sense. The Xbox, the PS3 and the 360 all had hardware issues that will limit any individual hardware unit's longevity, and over time, the finite number of units that were manufactured will dwindle, reducing the playability of those games. So I I get the idea, right? But to me, there's far more risk on a computer than on a console that an operating system upgrade will break your game, and then you're reliant on the rights owner caring enough to patch the game for the new OS, which, as I mentioned, doesn't really happen. But the only reason that to those users, it doesn't feel like a risk is because Windows has been a stagnant platform. And But at the same time, nobody has a contract with Microsoft that ensures that they're going to continue their stagnant approach to software development indefinitely. All we have is faith that is informed by 28 years of mostly additive changes to
0: Windows. I do have a funny story, just before you continue. I do have a funny story exactly about what you just mentioned, and that happened literally in the past few days. Um, so... Somebody in my brother's family-in-law need a new laptop... ...and they don't want to have too much money... ...so they're looking for a cheap laptop. And they do the typical... ...like they do like browsing and most browsing... ...but they have a couple of like Windows games. And just trying to understand through my brother... ...like which Windows version they're running... ...and kind of hinting at the fact that... ...yeah, even if laptops these days don't have a CD uh, player... ...or like a DVD player to install said game... Even so, maybe by changing Windows, it might not work. And I was, I was saying that, just saying, like, you know, don't quote me on that. But I kind of knew in the back of my head that, you know, it's Windows. Of course it will work because, you know what? It always works. But, yeah, you know, sometimes it changes on OS. So it was like literally like I had this exact thinking in the past two, three days while amping my brother, helping some people in his family-in-law
1: yeah um, there was a website a while back i don't I don't want to name this person because unfortunately, they've become attacked by a lot of people on the internet for being a weirdo, and like they're a weirdo that I love and not a weirdo that i hate so I don't want to throw hate their way um, but on their website there was a page that was basically like this huge 2,000, 3,000 word rant about how Windows 7 dropped support for like some API in System 16 or something that what? kept like some Windows 3.1 or Windows 95 Paint app from working on their new computer and this was like oh. I am downgrading right now to the and I was just like crying laughing as I was reading this post but at the same time it's like if you accustom people to things not breaking, the second you want to break something, you are going to get shit on.
0: That That is fair. That is totally fair.
1: So why didn't multi-platform developers see this coming? Well, multi-platform developers are used to developing on a stagnant platform that never requires anything of them. The idea of technical debt doesn't exist on Windows, so it pisses them off when they encounter anything that resembles it. Multi-platform developers intentionally avoid taking advantage of anything that is platform-specific, because otherwise you have to write platform-specific code, and that's kind of against the point. So they were not the kind of people to be enticed by shiny developer quality-of-life features that only work on the new Objective-C runtime. Multi-platform developers often rely on alternative toolchains or middleware, which becomes a choke point for adoption of new platform features and an unreliable middleman for the communication of platform-specific changes. This was an issue in 1999 when Motorola acquired MetroWorks. Uh, MetroWorks made CodeWarrior, which was the de facto standard IDE for Mac development at the time. And Motorola kind of didn't give a shit about Code Warrior and they pulled a lot of resources off of the desktop processor compiler teams in favor of putting them in embedded systems compiler teams. And this meant that for a while, Code Warrior was a bottleneck for platform feature adoption on the Mac. And until Apple released Xcode and heavily encouraged developers to switch to it, like you were sort of just waiting after Motorola to get their shit together and funnily enough code warrior effectively died during the intel transition because motorola sold off their intel compiler technology to nokia earlier that year which is kind of the comedic end to this whole thing is like you fucked up uh you didn't see the intel transition coming at all and you sold your compiler and now you don't have a product anymore congratulations so in my mind apple did all they could and gave developers plenty of time to make this a smooth transition. Fundamentally, the developers are the ones who let their users down here, not Apple. And the developers were fundamentally misled by Microsoft and their stagnant approach to operating systems. And they try to apply that as a general rule to all operating systems, even though that's not how shit works. And like, if you think this is Apple exclusive, go take a look at Linux, which has had a ton of shit happening with SystemD over the last decade. Uh, it's not Apple only, it's just like Microsoft doesn't do shit with their os well, that's all i can say it's that's how they work are you ready for conspiracy theory time
0: oh of course i'm always uh, oh wait i am always ready for this i'm not sure but i guess that today i am ready for this
1: okay so it is my strong belief that this year's abandonment of support for 32-bit apps was to shock the software ecosystem to make way for a 64-bit arm transition on the mac in 2020 in 2020 oh my goodness you're quite aggressive. So by forcing application developers to upgrade their Mac software over the course of the year, the likelihood that that software can be easily ported to a 64-bit ARM SoC in 2020 is significantly higher than if you continue to support 32-bit and then just like randomly spring a 64-bit only platform on them at the last minute. Uh, it feels very reminiscent to me of when Apple removed the headphone jack from the iPhone 7 so that the narrative surrounding the iPhone 10 wouldn't be about the headphone jack being removed. Uh, So Apple is causing the Mac software apocalypse a year early so that the story of our Macs doesn't revolve around apps dropping like flies. So to me, the like this was inevitable. The Mac software apocalypse was going to happen next year anyway. So you might as well just rip the bandaid off right now. Get the bad PR for an OS upgrade that is like unremarkable to say the (laughs) to say the best. And. Have a higher proportion of your software ready for the ARM migration early next, well, early next year. That, I don't know why I said early, but in the next year.
0: I wouldn't say it's uh, like a somewhat just normal OS. I would say that on top of dropping 32-bit apps, Catalina is in recent macOS version the most push forward to go to I- the iOS world. Or the iOS thinking, with a lot of the uh, the the permissions dialogue and all of that stuff, I feel that uh we had a couple of push with like uh, Lion, Mountain Lion, a, a lot of like those like uh, ten seven to ten ten updates where uh, Apple was trying to make macOS uh, closer to what iOS is and its uh, philosophy. And I feel that with Catalina, they're kind of like. Pressing the accelerator uh, again on that uh, transition. So yeah, there's um, when you mix both, I feel that it's not that much happy for the user. There's not a much happiness uh, when you migrate uh, with the user. And I guess we'll see in the next few months when Yannick and I do this uh, migration because we're a bit uh, not doubtful but fearful uh, at this point. At, at least myself, I am fearful uh, to migrate even if I think that most of my software will just work.
1: I know what software isn't going to work. I just haven't figured out my alternatives for it yet. So I'm just like trying to figure Mm -hmm. that out before I actually press the button. Um, Yeah, it's kind of funny what what you mentioned. Like what I meant by unremarkable is not like insignificant. It's just like people don't really like Catalina uh, is more what I meant by that.
0: Yeah, but I think they don't like it because it is a significant update.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And the other thing that's hilarious to me as a Scott Forstall fanboy is that... (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Is that if you remember the whole narrative about the iOSification of of Mac OS, like, the whole thing was, oh, good, we got rid of Forstall. Now we can finally stop this bullshit from happening to the Mac and we can go back to having good old Mac. And now it's like, we're just going to, like, have this crash collision where iOS and Mac become, like, indistinguishable, especially with, like, Catalyst and all this other stuff. Like, we're just, like, you can see the head-on collision happening in slow motion in front of you. And it's just a second of like when the impact was going to happen. Um, so yeah, it's really funny. Um, save Scott Forstall. Uh, I love him. So yeah, yeah, that's all I've got for this episode. I hope it was informative. And, uh, do you have any closing comments?
0: Huh? Um, not really. I, I, I think you're, uh, I guess you're bet on, uh, the arm transition starting, uh, I guess in more or less six months. Uh, is that what I understand? Like you, you would say that that will be the big news of, uh, WBC 2020?
1: That sounds right to me. Yeah.
0: Huh. Okay. Um, I'm, I would say that I wouldn't assume this year, but, soon in this new decade i would tend to agree so i guess soon is 2020 because uh when you hear my voice it will already be in the new decade but uh at the time of recording it is in two days so uh yeah i'm just surprised by that by the way i i, I kind of a feeling that you're somewhat right so that's why i kind of r- rambling a bit but at the same time do you think they'll like though okay it would make for uh, like a real comedic moment if they ship the Mac Pro, the updated Mac Pro in 2019, and then like six months later, it is already like kind of, nope, 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 because of ARM uh, ARM Max.
1: I'm not entirely convinced that the pros are anything you'd want to migrate over quickly to ARM. I think the, the products that have the most to game from going to ARM are the consumer laptops.
0: Oh, for sure, for sure. But I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised that there will be. Uh, we will all have. Like, we'll look at all the benchmarks. We'll look at the comparison. We'll like buy those laptops. Like, compile Swift code and realize that it's so much faster. Or, like as fast as it is right now, but using less power and blah, blah, blah. So we realize that even if they're consumer laptops, that they are so much nicer, that we would want our pro hardware to move to it ASAP. So yeah, it's, it, if it is this year, this year is going to be quite funny. Yeah. And quite interesting, for sure.
1: I can see the timeline being vaguely reminiscent of what the Intel transition was, which is like you announced it at WWDC. Maybe you have some developer preview hardware. Like maybe you just have like a fucking Apple TV box except it's like a mac mini in there and you just like give that oh, like as the a... old
0: apple tv you mean like the, oh yeah the, that's true the intel base uh apple tv
1: yeah but now it's like basically just an apple tv except it's running mac os on it and you oh, just okay. give that to developers and you're like here work on this shit go away <laughs> <laughs> uh i don't know it, it's it and then like maybe you release a uh, new MacBook Air with a new keyboard and an ARM processor in January of the next year, so 2021.
0: Oh my goodness! Uh, people will die if they have to wait for a new MacBook Airs with a new keyboard until 2021. They'll just like literally die.
1: Maybe you just make a hardware revision.
0: I know, I know. I'm sure they'll do something, but in uh,
1: April or something, like Happy Birthday, Nick! You can have a new MacBook Air with a new keyboard, so people can finally shut up about the keyboards.
0: Yeah, in in twink twink, that's the last Intel MacBook Air.
1: Maybe. I don't know. Uh I, I'm just like, it feels like since the uh two-port MacBook, I've always been like, fingers crossed, like this product was meant to be on ARM because it was never good as an Intel product. And it never came. And I think like now they're really due for it. And like Intel is fucking up majorly. And I don't think AMD is a good alternative either. So it's time to go ARM and like yeah. all of the work has been done to do the
0: ARM transition. So why aren't you doing it? And from what we've, I know I've heard that a lot, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised personally that if that were to happen, let's say in two years, whatever, but that when they introduced this transition that you would play them like pretty power PC to Intel uh, presentation to the Intel to ARM presentation and it will be more or less the same arguments.
1: Well, they won't mention Code Warrior because it won't be important anymore. No. But no,
0: but you see what I mean, like that, uh, like for uh, they were comparing the kind of efficiencies of Intel CPUs compared to PowerPC CPUs that they were drawing less power for the same like frequencies, and so they were, yeah, they were drawing less electricity for the same.
1: Yeah, you can, power pretty, and then... you can pretty much search and replace Intel and PowerPC for arm and intel and it kind of holds up
0: yeah yeah so i would be i wouldn't be surprised that literally you play both videos side by side once that's done and it is exactly the same presentation It just did uh search and replace with intel and PowerPC and arm
1: i'm not convinced whoever's going to be presenting it is going to be as charismatic as steve jobs though fair point anyway that that's it for me um let me know if you agree with my super conspiracy theory. Uh, Let me know if you learned anything. And uh, I've been working on this episode for like two months, so <laughs> it's good to finally get it out.
0: Good. I'm sure that Yannick will have some links in the show notes. So if you want to find said show notes for this episode, you can find them at limitlesspossibility.net slash 1, 2, 7, 127. If you want to catch up on our back catalog episode, you can find it at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L I M I P O underscore podcast. You can find myself there too at lukonosh That's L U C C O N O U C H, And you can find Nick at sakurina That's
1: S A K U R I N A.
0: And we see you in two weeks talking about the morning show.
1: See you in two weeks.